This is Subjects in Process, a podcast where we explore the limits of our knowledge, try to understand things that we take for granted, and work to see things from new points of view. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Jeff. After a uh, long winding uh, so discussion is, of the history of philosophy, yeah, part so two. it's interesting. It's interesting <laughs> because uh, as people who are fine tuning a craft, right? As we're kind of learning to podcast. In a previous episode, uh, we aimed to talk about a uh, a movie or a production of a show. Yep. And we ended up not talking about it because we spent a whole episode talking about the title. In this one, we managed to spend an entire episode not getting to the title. That's amazing. Like, yeah, I think is that getting, getting worse or better? Yeah, I, let's say better for now. I, I mean, yeah, let's say better. I think there's lots of there's lots of opportunities for improving. Yes, but I uh, I don't think that's one of them. <laughs> Good. Um, so that's right. So we we went through uh, Hume to Heidegger, basically, and now we're in the French. We're we're with the French, uh, yes. French philosophy, and we talked about kind of. The, the subject. That's actually where we got to. We got to the subject. Okay. Um, so yeah. So which is tell- which is uh interesting. I remember in um in uh Karen Hool's uh philosophy four hundred class. Yes. Uh one time there was a cl- there was a question. And so it was a sem- kind of a seminar format, but it was a very full class. It right. was like packed. There were people, all the desks were full, and then there were people around all the walls. It was actually one of those like magical university courses because i i remember this one yeah oh i mean i like the the course i mean yeah i remember i remember karen hool karen hool was there was very formative for me totally and what was weird is she was there for such a short time yeah and became a rock star in no time like people just flocked to her you know yeah so she was one of my two big ones and this is a moment where I and I thought as a kind of a, a quick, we got up to Heidegger, you said, right? Yeah. And so Heidegger, arguably, one of the two greatest, most important philosophers of the 20th century. Yep. Um, so and and maybe let's pretend it's Heidegger and Wittgenstein. I don't know who they are, but sure. But the interesting thing is, is that Heidegger or had, uh, had a student whose uh, name was Leo Strauss. Right. Oh, yeah, Leo Strauss. And Leo Strauss is a super, super interesting guy. He started to analyze texts in a very interesting way where, and it's actually maybe a little bit similar to some of what's really interesting about the way um, I feel like something I miss from my religious um, community is taking a text so seriously mm. that um, you sit down and you talk about a text and you do these close readings to really try to understand what's in it. And Leo Strauss does something similar with a lot of the ancient texts. Right, interesting. And he starts to kind of read 
I mean, it's kind of reading in between the lines. And it's almost this idea of, okay, if we're going to take this text seriously, then what would it have to mean? Right. And then you can, and then, uh, and I almost feel like it creates this environment in which uh, there's just a, a far more intense focus of applied thinking because everybody together is analyzing this text and yeah. kind of really reading into it. Yeah. And he, he has super interesting things, but my, the most, uh, the point about him that I really want to raise. Okay. But maybe, sorry. This is about Karen. Uh, Hull? uh close. Okay. Close. It's about rock stars at the university. of yes. Alberta. Yes. Okay. But uh, so just as an example of um, his texts, right. So in, um, in Plato's, most famous work, The Republic. He is talking about how to build um, the right kind of society, right? So we talked in the past about how he is, um, he's afraid of the sophists, right? And in the sophists, you know, you see a lot of the same things we, modern, in modern society, we're afraid of politicians. Yeah. And the sophists were training the politicians Mm. and they were training the politicians to be better at deceiving, better at wielding power, right? And instead of um, what Plato wanted was intense focused thought on how can we produce a better society yeah and and so he was trying to find a grounding for understanding truth yes rather than just manipulative opinions and persuasive arguments he wanted to get rid of the sizzle to find more stake right yeah and uh and so in his text uh, a very formative event for him, of course, was that his teacher, who was Socrates, yes. ended up being killed by the state. Yeah. And uh, and the accusation against him was blasphemy against the gods yep. and corrupting, uh, corrupting the youth. The youth. Yep. And that's because he was questioning the political authorities yep. because he wanted to seek something better than the status quo right so he wasn't saying question everything you know don't believe anything he was saying no we want to keep seeking the truth we want to keep seeking what's better but he was corrupting the youth because he was leading them to question and to uh, to know is know thyself as socrates right that's right yes absolutely yeah so um to question all these sorts of things and so in this book uh he does an amazing job of showing Strauss, Leo Strauss, yes. talking about the Republic, yep. shows how um, you can actually see that Plato is also writing a hidden message. It's only vaguely hidden, but you'd have to be reading closely to see it. Mm. And it's a message to philosophers um, to on how to seek truth and not get executed, right? Uh. How to, um, and then... Um, Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so so that's an example of some really interesting stuff that that he did. But the thing I actually wanted to highlight about him uh, was that he was the teacher of uh, Alan Bloom. Oh, oh, yeah, is, right. Um, maybe uh, closing not- of the American mind. Closing of the American mind, which you know, there's lots of potential criticisms of Alan Bloom, but interestingly, he was the uh, uh, teacher. Supervisor? What supervisor? Yeah. For um Dr. Heidi Studer, who was yes. a rock star in the philosophy, political yes. philosophy. 
at the University of Alberta and Dr. Robert Birch. Oh, wow. Who we both took classes from. Yes. So that which is means that we are direct lineage of Martin Heidegger. You know, I've done this is a, you know, like in um in uh mainline church kind of well Catholic churches, right? Or or uh there's this apostolic succession, right? Yes. And the importance of apostolic succession for uh, Catholic churches and Anglican churches that you can basically trace back. There's yeah. pe- there's a lot, there's a Orthodox lineage, right? Yeah. And we have the same thing in, in the Academy, you know, like yeah. I've tried to, f- my prof, Talad Marajan, who is my supervisor, her teacher was a guy at U of T who I think was an Oxford grad. Um yeah. So I think if I dug a little bit, I could find uh, the lineage there. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember the other person that I thought about uh, working with, she was a student of Northrop Fry, who oh, is like, cool. you know, literary theory megastar. But my supervisor is also a, a megastar herself. So yes. I'm not boasting. I'm just saying she's yes. very smart. Yes. Um, and actually, the book that that would be interesting to read some sometime of hers is called yeah. uh, Deconstruction and Phenomenology, mm. uh, The Remainder... Oh no, I think I got that title totally wrong. Uh, Deconstruction and the Remainders of Phenomenology. Okay. And it tra- traces the origins of uh, deconstruction in Sartre, in, oh. in phenomenology, which is not where we often see deconstruction come from. Deconstruction, mm-hmm. uh, which people often associate with Derrida, is actually, is usually connected b- because of post structuralism, which is something we talked about last time very briefly mm-hmm. but post-structuralism and the sort of linguistic turn in philosophy um right right where you have structuralism you see the world in signs and then when derrida comes on the scene and says yeah but like signs are let's let's play with signs see what you can do to play with signs and you can mess and around maybe- with linguistics and you can uh do things you know like the the difference between uh the sign and the sign there's the signifier and the signified is is always present and we're going to play fast and loose with that and you start to get towards post-structuralism which is to say signs the the connection between signs and the referent right signs and the things themselves becomes messy the signs and the things they refer to yes yeah but what talatama rajan talks about in her book is she she shows how if you connect deconstruction back to phenomenology you actually recover some of that and i'm totally butchering this argument but you're recovering some of that connection to reality to the real right that that the post-structuralists who are all nihilists right that like paul demon and his and his uh graduate students are very uh very dark right like the, the the way that they've they've come to see the world or or at least they did in the 80s yeah. you know that 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 whole uh view of kind of like it's all just language and therefore it is meaningless yeah right phenomenology gives you meaning back totally because, because right. it's yeah because so so just as like um uh phenomenology being the study of your experience the yeah. seeing what we can learn by uh paying very close attention to our experiences and presumably our experience of something. Is that the idea that that's yes. how it ties it? Yeah. Yeah. That that's how yeah. it grounds it. And, uh, and, and so the, the, 
I, I, okay, I just want to go back to make sure, figure out how did we get, we got to Karen Hool because Karen Hool is cool. Yeah. So and then, she's a and then I, 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 this is my fault because I just wanted to trace our lineage to Heidegger. Oh, yeah. Well, that's, that's cool. That's, that was the little Via Leo Strauss, who I've heard mixed things on Leo Strauss. I never knew anything about him, but I remember people who are a lot smarter than me in in my graduate program talking about him and kind of, I think that there's a lot of like, not, not in a person's, like a like a person like oh he's a real sucky guy or anything like that but more like i don't uh, like his philosophy I, I think that maybe the nazis drew upon strauss or is he too late i would think he's too late but and i think in his thought he was actually like he was very anti-nazi oh interesting and was, okay and he was really trying to yeah he was really trying to find um, kind of a way around that, but I would have to read more again about him. I just think um, what he does so well is um, is he he pays he pays close attention to the text. So uh, Owen Barfield, mm -hmm. who uh, taught at Oxford, and we mentioned in I think he was a lawyer. Oh. Okay, no, he was a lawyer, but he was. But he lived in Oxford, people. so he, he lived, lived in, Oxford. in Oxford. So he was friends with these people. So he's the one where, in the last one, he he we talked about how um, a rainbow is there, right? So he's taking very seriously the importance of the human experience in kind of recognizing certain kinds of realities. Sure. Is yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. And, although I and, don't know, he we would say human experience. We would say that, yeah, the human experience of these realities as uh, as signposts to an experience that is beyond just the human. Oh, okay. And right. so he's, yeah, I think he, great. I think you could locate him uh, as a post-Kantian, um, along with people like, and we won't get into this at all, but object-oriented ontology is a very yes. cool, interesting yeah. movement that basically says Kant says that we can't think anything other than what our mental what, what what we are given to think right yeah our phenomenon the phenomenal is only what we can think and he's yeah. like and, and the these these guys say why is that why sh right. why should it only be humans right why should we right. limit ourselves in that way can't we think of of a, the phenomenon maybe we can't access the noumenal but can't we think the phenomenal experience of being a pencil or right. being a hammer. And this well, is where and, you connect yeah. with Heidegger's uh, idea of uh, tool being, right? Like right. The, the being of a, a hammer being um, the when it's an extension of your arm rather than like... Uh, right, except, yeah, but for Heidegger, I think when he's talking about that, he would be talking about the hammer as uh, not its own being for itself, but talking about what it is as an object for us and different ways or with it is us. for us. Isn't, it, isn't that mit sign? Isn't that oh, the way it that might it's be. being with us? Yes. I don't but know. It does, but I just, I just don't know that it would be talking about, I'm not, and I don't know where these object oriented ontologists are and maybe we shouldn't even. Let's not, let's not even go there, but I. Okay. But okay. So, so, yeah. so Owen Barfield, right? So yeah. the reason why I bring up Owen Barfield and. Uh, are we getting always, back to Chris Ava? Well, uh, no, this is back to Leo Strauss. Okay, that's okay. Yeah, that's okay. okay. So yeah. yeah, so so the reason why I brought him up is because so he he is calling us to be attentive to our experience, right? Yes. And um, and I think worth 
I mean, I, there's a little bit of me that just kind of wants to mention that like our experience of things can be so amazing. And then science comes and says, oh, it is just, right. you know, and reduces it. I mean, so I, I also think scientists make a mistake if anytime they're not in awe of the scientific process that they're describing yeah. anytime. But at the same time, our experience itself is its own thing worthy of like, this is, this is real. Right. right? And not to say if I, uh, if I think something is true, it's true. Right. But my literal experience is happening and can be amazing. Yes. Right. And, and so one of the things Owen Barfield talks about is he says, we then describe our experience and our understanding of the world um, and we write things down. And so in studying other cultures, writings, other people's writings, the history of our writing, the history of our writing. And again, I'm not, I'm not very familiar with Owen Barfield, yeah. but what I love about that idea is, um, is in, so in our, in and of itself episode, I told the story about, um, Elijah, who ran from the persecution and is depressed in the mountains, right? And then the voice of God comes not in the storm, not in the fire, but in the whisper. Yeah. Right. And that's where we ended up talking a bit about tech and how can we hear the whisper of the subtle signs of what is the most beautiful in experience? Yeah. Uh, if if we're always looking at the fire, if we're always seeking the storm, if we're always trying to watch the next right. craziest movie on our phone. Yeah. And so Owen Barfield calls us to be attentive to the writing of people, which is giving us a kind of access to their experience. Yeah. And that attentiveness, right, to to writing is has the ability to reveal insights about a worldview, about a way of being, about yeah. you know insights into what it means to live well. And so with Leo Strauss, what I like about him yes. is his intense attentiveness to the writing yeah. and to say, what is this person really trying to say here, right? Yeah. What, what, uh, what wisdom can we glean from this, right? And even... Um, you know, uh, a great uh, analogy, I always remember someone, there's this saying uh, that floats around saying that, like, if you have a little piece of shit in the cookie dough, it ruins the whole batch of dough, right? right? Yes. Um, which uh, the- Have they the, tried that? Do they well, know that the, that's true? So the less, the less fun, like my response to that is just a little bit of bleach in a bottle of in a in a Nalgene of water cleans the whole thing <laughs> right and that's and that's the truth you can drop a little bit of bleach you leave it in the sun the sun breaks down the bleach and then that water is drinkable right and um but the the better version was um from Anne Gurnett oh Anne Tomalty sorry <laughs> who said uh maybe what we need to do is learn to eat around the poop in the cookie dough. Right. <laughs> and, um, 
And so that's just to say, whatever you're reading, yes, pay close attention and look for the look for the sunlight, look for the cleaning element, look for the good in it. Find that you don't have to take what's not good there. Right. But yes. um, anyway, so yeah. uh, that's uh, the, with the very little I know about Leo Strauss. What I know of him is how I got to have texts explained to me by Dr. Heidi Studer. Right. And, um, and she made texts amazing. Mm. Right. Right. So we studied um, uh, Shakespeare's Julius Caesar in her political philosophy. Oh, class. that's interesting. And after her class, I picked up another Shakespeare to try and be like, okay, I'm going to see it. I'm going to find the awesome stuff in here. And I totally failed. You know, it's like, <laughs> it takes real practice, but right. anyway, that's all to say that was all about Leo Strauss. That's all. That's good. But I think the, the Owen Barfield stuff actually gets yeah. us back to uh, the subject as well. Great. Oh, good. I, I think so. I'll see if I can make it happen. And if not, we'll just, we'll just kind of meander our way back. But like where we, where we kind of left off about Karen Houle, the reason I brought up Karen Houle is because in Karen Houle's class, seminar format, um, right. People everywhere, very stressful. I found it, I loved it, but also it was so scary, right. Because there was so many smart people in that, in that room. Yeah. Um, And one time she said, Something about, I can't remember the question was, but um, I think it was like, it was something like, um, I'll give you the answer. The answer that I gave was self and object. And she was like, "Uh, I think you mean subject and object or self and other. I think it was like binaries, name famous binaries. I think that's what she was asking, right? And so I raised my hand to say self and object. Other, I guess, is what I meant to say, but I didn't really know enough to know that that was what I should have said. Sure. Uh, and so I said self and object, and then she said, no, it's either subject and object or self and other. And I was like, I'm an idiot. And I don't know if I said anything else in that class for the rest of the term. Oh, um, no. I, anyways, it was embarrassing. But in hindsight, it's actually, it was helpful because self and other, like the binary of the self and the other uh, yeah. is different than the binary of the cell, the subject and the object. Totally. And I think part of the difference has to do with the way that the subject, what the subject means in philosophy uh, has to do with even the word subjectivity, right? It has to do with um, a question that's bigger than what's, what does it mean to be a selfhood, right? Like it's not just, what does it mean to be a selfhood? It's what does it mean to be, something that has um that has agency or that has uh has a sort of sense of itself as a as a constituted whole Mm -hmm. as opposed to a thing out there yep yep a thing that is just a thing yeah yeah and 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 it'll be interesting yeah because the uh the yeah, uh, maybe you just keep going because the what comes to mind for me as like the the most relevant um, and important factor that shapes this is consciousness, mm-hmm. right? So for me, a subject 
is something that has experience. Right. And and maybe you want it to be conscious of itself, but most importantly, you want it to be the experiencing something, right? So that's where and the object is dead and you know dead not just but non-living and in non-living non-experiencing. Um, but I feel like mm. that's not where that's interesting. Uh, yeah. Anyway, because uh, yeah, so like, for example, and, and maybe this is a good next place to go. Yeah. Um, Jacques Lacan, who yep. was a, a French psychoanalyst. Uh, I don't know his dates at all. Actually, that's so weird. I have no idea what his dates are. Um, but after he, Freud. For sure. After Freud, uh, yep. may, maybe co- maybe overlapping. I don't know. Yeah, but and he's, Freud's, uh, Freud dies in like 37. 30, yeah, 38, yeah. 39, something yeah. like that, right? Um, and uh, and I mean, in, the interpretation of dreams is published in 1900. Uh, it, it technically published in 1899, I think, but the date that was put on it was 1900 because it was going to be such an, like it was such an important book, the publisher's yeah thought that they were trying to signal this is a new this is the dawn of a new yes. way of thinking about things right which so, it was which it was it very much was right like the 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 three masters of suspicion um who are uh marx nietzsche and freud introduced a new way of thinking about the world right uh, yeah. instead of a hermeneutics of well whatever went before maybe a hermeneutics of ger- generosity right a way of reading things from the perspective of um of assuming that the the authority is good, right? Mm-hmm. We're assuming that we can trust tradition, yeah. uh, the masters of suspicion, and I think that's a, I think that's from, uh, uh, Merrill Westfall West. I can't remember. He, I think he uh, he maybe taught Peter Rollins, or oh. there's some connection to him. I don't know oh. what it is, but yep. um, I think I'm wrong about that. But but anyways, uh. They they introduced the hermeneutics of suspicion, which is which I think is actually that that term is a Paul Ricoeur term, uh, which is to say, oh. to to critique to question right yep. the attitude that you take to a text is to question yep. it and yep. question its authority right and yep. um and 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 what those guys do most of all is they provide the mechanisms for doing that right mm-hmm. so I I'm gonna look at my dreams and instead of just sort of assuming that what you see is what you get. I'm actually going to say, actually, there's something underneath the the manifest content. There's a latent yeah. conf- content within the dream that right. I need to that is access. Less that is, obvious, that's but less obvious, but through questioning. Through now, conversation, right? Through yeah. com- the talking cure. That's what the talking cure is all about, right? Is to right. let the analyst uh, divulge the sort of narratives within the analyst's end. So uh, do we want to keep moving or is this an okay time for me to uh, question the hermeneutics of suspicion, to be suspicious of the hermeneutics of suspicion? I mean, I, I think that's a really good thing for us to do. Maybe so, we should because it doesn't actually undermine subjects in process. I actually think it might converge with- Totally. With, I with think so name. too. So. Yeah. So, so uh, for me, so with- I, I totally get the idea of questioning the authority, but what I worry about in a so hermeneutics is the is the process of like uh, coming to understand what something means. 
Is that right? Yeah, like I, I think, I mean, I, always, it, yeah, that's why I've kind of used it. it. It's, I think the origins of it are in uh, biblical interpretation specifically. Okay, interesting. Yeah, but it, but it ends up being a critical theory term. Uh, yeah, like it, yeah, yeah, it's used and it's literary used, theory. Yeah, yeah. So just in terms of a hermeneutics of suspicion, it's saying don't assume that the popular interpretation and the message being promoted is accurate, right? And and I'm totally into that because so in terms of the subjects in process, which we're talking about, right? So I I was actually this morning at a our weekly huddle. We have mm -hmm. an icebreaker activity now. It's a nice. recently added like part that. to our weekly huddle, which is interesting because this is very much, it much, feels much closer to the sort of stuff I was claiming we didn't have. Anyway, so <laughs> we were on our uh, virtual collaborative space and there were pictures of us all on the space. And then we nice. all had to look up a Google image of a hobby or something we really like to do. Nice. And, um, and I chose the picture of uh, the cover of a book called being wrong nice. and just with the idea of saying the thing i like to do is learning right right and um if the very idea of learning requires a recognition of a gap in your current way of seeing things yeah and so what which so the hermeneutics of suspicion um is I like I like the questioning and the testing, but what I worry about is that like so with Marx specifically, I think he sets up a framework in which he questions everyone else, but the only legitimate answer is his own view, mm. right? He he does not give, he does not lay a groundwork for learning. He says here's my thing and I'm going to set it up in such a way so that anybody who's saying anything else uh, should be written off. You know, mm. we should be suspicious of everyone except me. Mm. And uh, anyway, so that's just where the, the, I, I, the hermeneutics of generosity, where you're yeah. trying to see what's good in it, uh, feels like it retains, you can still question, but there's this like, um, it's, it's all about trying to continually see what is the grounds for, for progress, for new insight, for, yeah. Right. And, and I mean, I've always sort of taken the hermeneutics of generosity, which in this may not be what recur meant by it, but yep. I've always taken it as just don't assume that, that, that the person that you're reading is an idiot. Yeah. Like don't, don't start from the perspective of, like it's an interesting thing. I remember often in uh, university reading texts that were so difficult to read yes. that I thought, I bet that this is, I bet he's just wrong. I bet he just made mistakes, right? This guy, oh, you know, yes. like, and I remember even saying once again, this is like, this is going to be an episode full of Jeff saying things in class that he then immediately <laughs> regrets because he feels so dumb afterwards. But I remember saying uh, just off the cuff, to a bunch of theory students and my theory prof in my PhD. Um, oh, yeah, Zizek has a lot of like spelling mistakes, uh, like grammatical mistakes uh, yeah. in his books. And uh, the prof immediately was just like, oh, like, really? Oh, I, I've never encountered that before. And uh, and I was like, in my head, I was like, I'm pretty sure that I encountered these grammatical mistakes. But <laughs> now I'm like second guessing myself, except that, you know, I 
I did do technical writing for like a long time before I did this. So <laughs> maybe I was wrong. And anyways, yes. but the thing is, is that a hermeneutics of generosity says, even if I don't understand what this guy's saying, yes. he actually, or she might be actually saying something that is just a lot, <clears throat> just a lot deeper than yeah. what I, I'm able to grasp without really mm -hmm. wrestling with it. And so it, it means it's like what you're saying with Strauss a little bit, right. Yeah. Is, is going to a text and saying, there's something here, whether yes. it's there or not, I'm going to yes. assume that it's there and yeah. I'm going to work until I can find it. Yeah. And, and, and even like, um, like, and, and I think you can even scale it back a bit, right? So like this idea of the, the, the synthesis, antithesis, uh, no, thesis, thesis yeah. antithesis, right? So the first thesis may is not you know it's not fully right but it might be right about something right, right. so so this is one of the things that when we talked about um so with P plato and socrates who go around asking people about their ideas about justice their ideas about education right and mm -hmm. by talking to all these people I mean, Socrates was a bit of a jackass about it, maybe, mm -hmm. but the idea of um, everybody's experience, you know, from the science perspective is additional data points that you can learn from, right? Right. So even, even if they're wrong about a lot of stuff, they're right about something, right? Right. And... Um, and then, and then also the fact, another part that I think of is, and we've talked about this before, you know, humans are little creatures that can hold four things in their head at once. Right. And the world is so complicated, right? Like, uh, scientists can't tell you what's going to happen when two electrons run into each other, let alone right. when you add a lot more electrons to the right. system. Yeah. And so, um, with that in mind, we're all always going to be wrong. And all of our different like frameworks for how to approach the world are going to be partial and incomplete. Like maybe the guy you are talking to is an idiot, but you're also an idiot and right. maybe he can help you yeah. out. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's like, it's so complicated. And then, oh, and then, and the, that's, that makes communication difficult. And so um, uh, there's actually, I'm going to go ahead and throw out a recommendation yeah. for this. We should have like a sound effect for that. Yes, like, absolutely. Recommendation. Recommendation. <laughs> okay. <laughs> for Nikki Case. So Nikki mm. Case is like a, uh, a little indie computer programmer. Oh, interesting. And has a, has a website and does these kind of interactive um, education things on different topics. Oh, so, okay. for example, has a really good one on voting systems. Yeah, uh, and kind of talks about how bad first past the post, which is what we use. Oh, interesting. Right? Okay, yeah. Um, and so, so it's interesting, right? So, first past the post, the in Canada, which is where Jeff and I are reporting from, right? So we've got 
uh, three main parties, and we've got the conservatives, we've got the liberals, and we've got the NDP, right? And that kind of goes from right to left. The conservatives are our most right wing, liberals are a little more centrist, and the NDP are a little more left. And Canada on the whole is a little left of center. Yeah. And so in our current system, that's what the conservatives love because uh, they can hope for the left vote to be split between the liberals and the NDP, and then they get to sneak in over top, right? If, if that vote doesn't get split, they never win. Uh, so, but, if, but they can win, even though you know, two-thirds of the population don't want them to win, right? right. They would yeah. prefer either of the other parties, but there's a coordination problem. So first past the post, generally recognized. Now, the next system that is weird because everyone's falling in love with it is um, ranked choice voting. Oh, you right. Your yeah. Choice, your second choice, your third choice, which is better than first past the post, but it is the next worst. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so that's kind of annoying, too. But of course, the liberals love ranked choice voting, which is what they were trying to go for, because the NDP will always have liberals as their second choice, and the conservatives will always have liberals as their second right. choice, because yes. they're in the middle. Yes. So it's interesting, because our current government promised electoral reform, Yes, believing they were going to get to go to ranked choice voting. But when the committee got together, and that didn't come out as the most probable solution, they shut it all down. Yeah, and exactly. And so the NDP want um proportional representation yes rep by pop right yeah. which because then they're they're gonna get more than they current get because they're probably the least popular party but not by that much right so they're always getting 25 percent of the votes yes and getting very few of the seats anyway the best one this is so this is nikki case yeah and now i can't remember why i brought nikki case up Was oh it a, yeah about oh i do remember nikki case has another a different one which is it's called it's about trust okay and kind of it starts off with this interesting thought about how we are we will often have times of peace that then erupt into war right mm. and then within wars you have all these instances of kind of eruptions of peace like, like even the christmas with, uh exactly uh whatever silent and, night incident and um, and so uses this whole kind of interactive little game that you can play oh. to kind of illustrate like what's the best strategy for yep. getting through life and then says, okay, so this is the best strategy. Now, what happens if we introduce a new problem of miscommunication into this game? Hmm. And it... Um, it causes all kinds of problems. Anyway, so I think everybody who wants a better world yeah. needs to understand that one of your number one priorities is to communicate well and make right. it easier for other people to communicate. Because when we all run around with our own perspectives, misunderstanding other people and assuming yeah. they're either an idiot or they're evil, yeah. We end up in a very bad world, and that's that's what you can learn if you go and uh, test out Nikki Case's Sweet. little website. Th and, this gets yeah. us to directly to Julia Kristeva yes. and why she would say that, sadly, that is just not possible.
Julia Kristeva is a psychoanalyst, and uh, and she has a book called. Um, do you like that? I've skipped. I'm, I'm just skipping right right to her because I'm nervous yes. that we we may not actually get to her if we yep. continue to meander I'm, through the history I'm, of philosophy. Uh, but she has a book internet. that I'm just showing to John right now. Awesome. There's a picture of uh, a, a guy on the front. I think it's a Matisse. Yeah, Henry Matisse, the sword swallower. Oh, but wow. uh, it's on the cover of the book, and the book is called Revolution in Poetic Language. Um, when my daughter saw the the picture on the front, she said that it looked like uh, a, a bunch of guys' heads were coming out of a guy's head, which uh, mm-hmm. I think is actually quite uh, astute and uh, an astute observation. Um, Revolution in Poetic Language was Julia Kristeva's uh, doctoral dissertation, I think, okay. or started as that. It came out in 1974 and uh, talks about a lot of different things. And I have not read all of it. I've only read parts of it. I read it for my honors thesis. Um, but the thing that jumped out at me was this: uh, these two concepts that she has. Um, she had this concept of the semiotic and then a concept of the symbolic. Um, and she opposes those to each other, but she also says that these are both necessary uh, things. And so we'll get into what, what, they, what they mean. Um, you know, we've been talking about the connection, this weird intersection that happens uh, in the sort of 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s between uh, philosophy, 20th century continental philosophy, uh, language, right, linguistic theory, and specifically semiotics, um, which is like sign theory, um, psych- and psychology, right, these, this mix of these, these, this encounter between these three fields. Um, and you get people like Jacques Lacan. Um, and Jacques Lacan, he talks a lot about the subject, that, which we were talking about before, um, but, but brings in language. So his great contribution to um, to psychoanalysis is bringing l- language, the question of language, uh, which inherently is a question of society, right, of, of the social. And this is going back to what this is. This is Nikki Case, right? We should actually make Nikki mm-hmm. Case. He's our like, or sh- is it a she? Is it she? She. She's our like anchor here. Like yeah. this is Nikki Case all over again. It's lang- It's all about communication, right? Like, yeah. So language always implies uh, a social context where you, you know, I can say something and you yeah. say, understand what I'm saying, right? You're the, you're the, you know, listener. I, I don't know what the different, you know, I'm the speaker, you're the listener and the yeah. message that goes between me and you and you understand what I say and somehow language happened in the yeah. mix of that, right? Yeah. Um, and we've talked about one of Lacan's ideas, the point of capital. Capiton, right? The quilting point, where these these um, s- signs get pulled together uh, in some sort of um, agreed upon understanding of what something means. Yep. Um, and so Lacan has, and it's important to talk about Lacan in order to talk about Kristeva, yep. um, because Kristeva is drawing on Lacan. She's also drawing on um, another psychoanalyst named Melanie Klein. Uh, who I don't really know as much about, um, but she she did a lot of work with children and so did a lot of work on kind of the formation of the psychic subject, right? So when we say psychic mm-hmm. subject, we're not talking about like psychic, you know, like yes. uh, 
you know, mind reader or something or fortune teller, psychology, like psychology, but, yeah. but focusing on this idea of uh, a subject, right? Someone who thinks of themselves in terms of their subjectivity, but focused on the psych, their psychology, yeah. you know, the stuff that's going on in whatever that is, the psyche, yeah. the mind, the, the psyche. mind, the, the psyche, the, the yeah, right? The suke is, is that just, is that spirit? I'm not sure. Actually, I can't I, remember I, what psuche look, means. I'm going to yeah, definitely look up. Because that, that yeah. old Greek term, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, so anyways, Lacan has this idea of uh, the mirror stage, which is this really important uh, kind of, it's it's not like, like, I think it's something that he thinks is literally happening for people. But like Freud, a lot of the stuff that he's talking about are like structures or processes that he speaks about in terms of um, a theoretical, theoretically, and how those might get manifested in individuals is different, right? But so the mirror stage goes like this. Um, prior to the age of six months or so, um, the infant does not see themselves as being a separate entity uh, from anything. Everything yep. is themselves, right? Yep. So they're uh, nursing, and yeah. their mother is just themselves, right? Yeah. It's all it's all me, yeah. um, uh, all me all the time, right? Yeah. And then uh, between the ages of six and nine months, the infant uh, finds themselves in front of a mirror, and they look at the mirror, and they suddenly say, "Hey, that's me," and they see this image, the imago, of an, an, an object. They see an object in front of them in this mirror. And they say that thing, that object is actually me, uh, which is for, for Lacan, that is the first step in subjectivity. Subjectivity is moving beyond this sort of non-diversified, non-discrete, uh, amorphous sort of reality where I am everything mm -hmm. uh, to seeing your sub seeing yourself as an object. So the, right. it's it's kind of one of these fun French things, right? Where you're, the first step towards becoming a subject is to see yourself as an object, right? Um, and so, yeah. so that that's that's kind of the beginning of the subject for Lacan. Kristeva uh, takes us, and and I think she even talks about the mirror stage, but she says, okay, well, let's call that first that first thing the semiotic. Uh, let's call that first state of being um, the semiotic, which for the her pre pre-differentiated, the pre-differentiated. Okay, that that is, uh, you know, what's I, I sent a line I think to uh, to you in the um, or in one of these documents, and I had it on my phone, but you know, we talked for an hour and a half about other stuff first. Uh, here it is. Okay, <laughs> uh, so it says like that. She says this. Uh, discrete quantities of energy move through the body of the subject who is not yet constituted as such. And in the course of his development, they are arranged according to the various constraints imposed on this body, always already involved in the semiotic process by family and social structures. And so what she's saying there, so, so for Lacan, right, you have this in, interaction with the imago that creates what he calls the imaginary. And the imaginary is like, it's like your version of this is the way I want reality to be mm -hmm. and the way it is 
in my, like, when I have no other kind of feeling of constraint, this is the way it is, right? I see that imago, I see that amazing looking uh, object in the mirror and I'm like, yeah. that's me. Yeah, yeah. Right. Like I'm a dude or I'm a, whatever, you know, I'm a, that, this is me. Yeah. Um, that's the imaginary. Um, but rubbing up against the imaginary and constraining it immediately is the, the symbolic, uh, which is another it's, uh, Lacan's has a three-part uh, typology. So the imaginary, the symbolic, right. And the symbolic for Lacan is language. It's yeah. language in the sense of like the father, the, the the mother. Now I now I'm the mother is not just my like an extension of my being. The mother is my mother. I have a mother now, and now mm -hmm. and and all of the the word that that word means, right? Everything that this the society that I live in puts with mother or puts with mm -hmm. father, right? Like the nom du père, the name of the father is a really important concept for Lacan as well, right? Because it's like uh, the kind of patriarchal sort of, I mean, that's mm -hmm. where he's sort of pulling in Oedipal thinking. Um, yeah. But it's society, right? Society. Yeah. And now I'm suddenly like, wait a minute, I had this imaginary and it was awesome, but it's constrained by these social structures that are that are linguistic, right? And so she has this idea that okay. We well, have, so I yeah, will. I, yeah, I'll just interrupt I'll just put me because I'm. Yeah, no, no. This is good. I no. This is really good. I just want to bookmark, and I think you know at a certain point, uh, yeah, listeners will be able to anticipate my bookmarks. But my my challenge with the constraints being linguistic, right? Just to say, um, you know, and and even you know, she mentions that they are. Uh, these these limitations, right? So you've got this energy that's coursing through the body and it is non-differentiated. And then suddenly you've identified yourself and you're like, I'm awesome. And we actually all have this still where we imagine ourselves to maybe be better than we are, right? right. Yeah. And, um, and we've got this imaginary picture of ourselves and then we run in and this energy that then runs into limitations. Yeah. And, um, you know, if there's no mom and no dad, you know, like the, the doorknob being too high for the child, you know, like how they're going to suddenly be like, oh, man, I'm not as awesome as I thought. I can't get into the cookie cupboard. Uh, but I just so my struggle is because you, know, you can't tell anybody. <clears throat> You can't, you can't say it. You can't put it into language, right? If you could control the universe with your mind, right? Or with, with whatever the non-linguistic uh, expression of yourself might be, then you could still be that imaginary awesomeness. Um, but I, like, I think the thing to, to say is it's like the symbolic is, is partly that, yeah, the only way to, to function in society in in the social world is is linguistic is symbolic mm -hmm. um and so what she talks about is she says we have on the one hand the symbolic which is the subject of enunciation it's the transcendental subject um it's the it's the the way that i am told it's what i'm told i am right mm -hmm. i say i'm look at me i'm an amazing uh, object in that mirror and mm -hmm. then uh my caretaker you know 
whoever it might be says, all right, baby, time to go back to bed. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to. Right. I don't want to, but I'm also being told what I am because I'm being told, no, you're not just this awesome object in a mirror. You yes. are actually uh, a baby. <laughs> okay. So, so, I mean, I'm, I'm willing to keep going on this point, but maybe you have more to say before I want to like derail us onto my continued struggle with things being reduced to language. I think let's let's keep going because I think yeah, the uh, I agree I agree I think no, this what is they where... mean by language is maybe not what you think language totally the way I'm, to I'm, I'm totally about that and so there's two possibilities right like I could be totally wrong about the language thing but even if I was right I still suspect there's insights to be gained here so that's right? a good like this point, hermeneutics yeah. of generosity <laughs> yeah I totally yeah. I'm, I'm ready yeah so 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 on the one hand, she has uh, the semiotic, or sorry, the symbolic, right? And the symbolic mm -hmm. is uh, the uh, this subject of enunciation. So I'm just trying to see if I can find, I, I don't think I'll be able to find the actual part in the book, which is okay. Okay, um, so just wait. So we the semiotic, sorry, this is bad, but hopefully, yeah. I mean, probably the listeners don't remember either. Semiotic yeah. is pre-differentiation. I think that's what she's she would say. Yeah. And there is a term for that, like the pre pre the mirror stage prior to the mirror stage. I just don't yeah. remember what it is. But okay, um, okay. But then once we get to uh once we okay, but we were moving past that. Now we're into the symbolic, which yes. is where I recognize myself as an object. Uh so this the sub no, the, the imaginary. So this is Lacan. The imaginary yes. is the world where I recognize myself as an object is the, as the, as an imago, right? Yep. The, the image, okay. yep. uh, the symbolic is there at the same time. And it's the, the field of language that constrains okay. me. Okay. Um, now the third part of Lacan's typology is, uh, the real mm, capital okay. R the real yeah. and the real is something. I, I think that it resonates with the noumenal. Yes. In Kant, except yes. that the real. Just to, and just as a reminder, yeah. so noumenal for Kant is like the stuff as it is in and of itself, not just our feeble perceptions that are flawed and mistaken, yeah. but the actual thing that we can never fully, that we can never reach. Yes. So in Kant, the noumenal is, I mean, like it, it doesn't have a, a, value necessarily right sometimes yeah. the noumenal like there's a the, the idea of the holy by rudolf otto i think his name is um he talks about the numinous right yeah. and and i think he's picking up on kantian uh mm -hmm. concepts there mm -hmm. for lacan the real is like terrifying yeah. the real is horror and yeah. when zizek picks up on the real that's where yeah. he focuses on. He he yep. he draws attention to the real by by talking about like John Carpenter movies and about like these these things that are like the uncanny overlaps with the real, right? Like mm -hmm. so, uh, Freud has this concept of the uncanny, where he says uh, uncanny is in German is unheimlich, which means unhomely, right? So the homely is the familiar, and the uncanny is like the like, like, well, I mean, when you think of Uncanny Valley, right? Like mm -hmm. uh, in early CGI or even yeah. maybe current CGI, getting right? Close. Where yeah. Yeah, Almost it's getting better. It, it's getting better. There. Yeah. Sure. Right. But it's that moment where you're like, uh, uh, like, 
I'm going to bleep this out, but what the fuck? Like, oh my goodness, yeah. that's, yeah. what is that? Holy smokes, you know, yeah. just getting like, um, and, and for Lacan, the real, it's called the real because that's what's real, right? Like, it's like, uh, I, I think of it kind of like Nietzsche has this really neat idea in The Birth of Tragedy uh, of the Ap- Ap- Apollonian and the Dionysian. Yes, that's what this came to mind for me too. It's Good. And it's such a beautiful concept, right? The Apollonian yeah. is a mask that the Greeks invent to put over the Dionysian reality that subsists uh, under the mask, right? And so just, and just like Apollo is the God of reason, right? And so music, this is how, and music and, as well. And music. So we walk around playing nice music and pretending we understand the world. Yeah. And Dionysius is the God of wine, who's just yeah. like, Chaos it's all, and, it's just madness and yeah, like, don't worry about it, man. We're going to have a good time. It's yeah. uh, don't, don't, yeah. Don't try and stare it in the face. It's, and so he, Nietzsche talks about like, uh, you know, the early, he sees Dionysus as an early God in the, in the development of the Pantheon. It's, he's like, like the God that humans experience uh, under the, the kind of horror of discovering themselves as like conscious creatures in the universe, right? Like as oh, they yeah. realize how horrifying the universe is, they they say we need to start coming up with like uh, structures that protect us from right. from this, right? That we can that make it so that we're not constantly face to face with uh, awe and and uh, terror and like. Yes. Uh, anyways, I love it. it it's yeah. just such an exciting kind of way of thinking about things, right? Yeah, I do. I do love it. But I also I also feel like there's like I almost wonder if there's some correlation between uh, like a, um, a, a predilection towards depressive thinking or um, catastrophic thinking amongst good writers. You know, probably, and, probably. And, and so just the, because the interesting thing is, is like those humans, let's say they're now self-conscious, whereas before they were conscious, right? They've just emerged from the semiotic into the symbolic, right? Right. But even before you were aware of yourself, the, 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 the world that you now recognize is as um, ready to crush you, right? Like, if you don't uh, build a fire, you're going to freeze. But at the same time, it also grows fruit on its trees. Right. Yes. Right. And, and like, but you, but the yeah. experience, the experience of it, right? Yeah. Like that's that's I think the existential element in Nietzsche, right? Mm-hmm. Is is seeing that like yeah, the the, it, it, I mean, kind of goes back to this idea of like. Um, uh, our experience is not uh, coterminous with the reality outside of it, right? Like um, I could be a mindless, you know, pre-conscious human, right? Mm-hmm. Like some sort of late stage homo mm-hmm. something or other, right? And walking around, not, I mean, terrified in the way that an animal is terrified, but not conscious 
of my tariff. Although maybe mm-hmm. this is going down to like uh, Thomas Nagel and like, what does it mean to be a bat? We don't. I mean, well, no, we're like gonna we, get. We're gonna get there though. Let's. Okay. Okay. Let's, let's, I, I, let's I'm not gonna. Now. I'm not gonna go down there. Other I than I think we're gonna have to talk about uh, mind-body dualism and, yeah. and consciousness because as much as it's like annoyingly analytical for me, <laughs> it's like it's the starting point of like once you get once you get past that, there's a lot of opportunity. And so anyway, because that's okay. an alternative way of tackling some of these topics, right. but yes. Yeah. So, keep going. so, okay. I'm going to, I'm going to pull back from Nietzsche. Um, so, but can I, maybe I want to ask for a clarification. Yeah. So I think when I was imagining the horror of the real, yeah. Um, so uh, it, I was imagining it as uh, a recognition that the universe is beyond our control and we are mortal, but maybe you're suggesting that it's more than that. It's also just the sheer otherness of it. And the fact that it's like, like in, in existentialism, there is this concept of nausea where you look at a tree (laughs) and at a certain, and then you puke. Yeah. (laughs) Because, because like, you actually the only reason why the tree makes sense to us is because we take it for granted right right? uh if you actually start to say wait what why why anything right you know yeah that's where it's like it's so it's it it is potentially literally unknowable yes and the isness of it is just there and explanation is gone, which is different from the fear of survival, right? right? Survival versus existential angst. And so that's just where, so right. with the real, I wasn't sure where, which which or both or what. Well, okay. So before I answer that, I think yes. that there is a short story that needs to be written in which Heidegger, uh, Owen Barfield, and uh, Jean-Paul Sartre all look at a tree together. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Heidegger talks like talks about the disclosure experience that he's having as Dasein, yeah. and Owen Barfield talks about uh, the tree and the way that it's actually a shared hallucination on par with a rainbow. And okay. Sartre just pukes because of okay. his nausea. Five five hundred <laughs> words or less. We each write it, and it will just go. We'll send it out to our Patreon subscribers. Yeah, exactly. It'll yeah. be in the mailbox. Yeah, um, that's great. Uh, okay, so. I mean, so the real, the reason that the real is horrifying, I think, is because of the way that it unsettles the symbolic and the imaginary, right? It, right. it is horrifying, subjectively speaking, right? Yeah. It, it doesn't, it wouldn't make sense to talk about the real as, um, as being kind of like, it's in and of itself horrifying, because it, yeah. it, it's only in relation to us. Um, and in terms of, I mean, I think, I think, yeah, from that perspective of like, it's unsettling things. Well, I think it actually could be either survival or, I mean, the minute that something gets turned into a survival question, you're back into the realm of the symbolic. Yes. Okay. Right. You're not, you're not in the, the real is the way that I think Lacan talks about it is in terms of like interruption, right? It erupts, but, but it's, it's, you can't really like point to it. You yeah, so but you can't but say this is, that this is it. Like, but an earthquake happens, right? And yeah. suddenly there's like this thing that's happened and trauma, the traumas that that are kind of the reverberations of that uh horrible experience, those 
those kind of are like traces of the real uh, sort of to cross some I of guess, our philosophical paths so here. But it, It's interesting, right? So not wanting to pull us back too far, but this my my problem with the notion of things being grounded in language, right? And you talked before about how the post-structuralists like to start playing fast and loose with language, right? And so my problem with that is I value the post-structuralists and the deconstruction deconstructionists because they highlight problems in a lot of the way we think um, that we have failed to question. But what I don't like is when they set it up in this situation where it's all questions, there's no answers, right? And so, um, and, and so like what I like about the concept of the real, even when it is just reduced to this notion of survival, it's like, is their fruit on the tree or not, right? And you can talk about this as a symbolic game, a language game, a social structure, but the the ultimate test for us as pathetic little physical creatures is do I die or not? You know, if there's no fruit on the tree, I die. And that's and that's the I real. I, I I think that that's not the question. The question is I'm starving. I'm so hungry. I just, I'm so, so hungry. I just want to eat something. Where is that thing? Oh, it's over there. That guy's, that guy's taking the last one. I'm, I'm going to kill that guy. Like I, I want to, like, to me, it's not the X, it doesn't go to the existential question at least. And, and maybe this is why I like a lot of psychoanal psychoanalysis is it doesn't go to the existential question right away. It goes to the drives, right? It goes to the instinctual question of i want to deal with this yes okay this thing that i don't like and that's going on inside of me right and, and i'm super interested in the drives i really like the the notion again like one of my uh challenge like i don't like when humans walk around thinking i'm just gonna do what's logical and make sense right, right? i <laughs> like that and and i would i'm i would be interested in talking about that a lot um, but and and the drives are an illustration of uh, what we are actually acting based on things that are just given. There's right. no explanation for them. I mean, and there can still be an evolutionary explanation for them, but that's still anyway. Yeah, that, that's it's not complete anyway. That but that's but and so the drives are significant and this reminds me anyway so uh they're significant but there are still the the question of the real to me there's still an important question about if the tree with the fruit is there right um, yeah and and maybe like maybe it's maybe the more important question is understanding your drives um, more important in a sense of understanding yourself and self-exploration and living a meaningful life. But there are also important, there's a lot of value in terms of knowing where the food is. And I don't just mean for myself, I mean for the world and coordinating around what is the case. Right. And those things are all part of uh, social imaginaries and ways of uh, using the symbolic order in order to make things happen. 
what that's all part of um like to 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 live in that world is to be is is to be a subject of enunciation it's to speak in ways that are trying to move things forward right yeah chris davis says that is part of what it means to be human yeah the other part of what it means to be human is to be uh drives be yeah. fully just a semi the semiotic core is how she she describes it which is this uh it, it is pre-eat pre-eatable right like that's that's okay. what it is to be yeah. pre before the mirror stage but it's also um it's also something that doesn't leave us right yeah so that just in the same way that we are subjects of enunciation going out into the world <laughs> trying to make it a better place right yeah we are also, and here we go, I don't know what time it is in this podcast, we are also subjects in process. Yeah. Because to be a subject in process is to be a subject that is always becoming and is always um, uh, developing and, and wrestling with our, uh, our desires and our drives. I'm just uh, finding there's a great, the translator of this book, <laughs> Oh, if you ever read any book that's written by a French theorist, read the translation translator's preface because they often talk about just how freaking hard it was to to translate the the book because yeah. people use language so weird. So this this uh, translator who is um, uh, unnamed here, uh, Margaret Waller, she says, um, the Christavian subject is nonetheless always implicated in a heterogeneous signifying process. His identity never become, ever becoming, questioned and questionable is always uh, in process or on trial. So, so French, in, in the French language, to say something is en procès is to say that it's in process or yeah. that it's on trial. Oh, interesting. And the whole idea of the, of the mirror stage and of just what it means to be a subject of enunciation it means that you are someone who is speaking, but is also always being uh, constrained. Yeah. Right. Your your drives are always being formed. You're always yep. kind of on trial. And and there's, I think the thing that's interesting, and I don't know if Chris David talks about this, but it fits with kind of our approach in this podcast, what we've wrestled with so far, mm -hmm. is this idea that we want to make a change in the world, right? We want the world to be a different kind of place or we want to understand the world better, right? Um, to be part of uh, the social. Mm -hmm. um, but there are ways in which um, us as individuals, you know, any individual person, we, we have these things that we desire in the world that, that we desire for ourselves or just desire mm -hmm. that are in conflict with, uh, with the social, right? that are in conflict with maybe the best interests of everyone or that are in conflict with what people in power say that we should be doing. Um, and I think what it means to be a subject in process for Kristeva is to be someone who is constantly wrestling with the drives within us in conversation um, and maybe more than conversation, right? In kind of like, uh, that I use the term from from Blake, I think the other other day, mental forms creating, mm -hmm. right? Like this this fierce uh, uh, engagement with mutual constitution, mutual constitution with the, the symbolic order, with the order of the world 
that is a world of people who are able to speak to one another. But I mean, like, I think it's a testament to the fact that almost every time we, we talk about something, it takes us forever to try to get to a place where we are trying, we're talking on the same page. Yeah. But the, the reason for that is because of this semiotic uh, chaos within us, right? Uh, and I don't mean chaos in a negative way. I just mean this, this um, desire, right? This, the desire that we have to, to mean ourselves to one another, right? To, to be known. Um, uh, That's definitely part of it. Yeah. But I also think there's far more mundane challenges at the same time. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, yeah. Okay. So, I mean, it's interesting. So, because a big, a big a part of like, oh man, I, the way I think about things is so, uh, the words are so much less interesting. But um, <clears throat> so there's a cost to coordination. There's oh. a lot of work required to get on the same page. But, uh, there's also, I mean, there's also a lot of benefits in specialization of labor, which like, um, you know, if there's something you like doing and there's something else that I like doing that you don't like doing, there's this incredible opportunity for mutual benefit. Right. And, and it's interesting, it, like, and that's just, it's so in, it can be so in line with our drives right and but our drive um, our drives are our drives within ourselves are in conflict right i you could be doing something that i'm like man i bet he doesn't like doing that i i could do that for him but the minute that i say hey i'll do that for you you could be the kind of person who says but i i don't like doing what i'm doing but i like doing what i'm doing more than letting him do the thing that he wants to do Right. Like there, yes. there's a, an example of a, of a drive in conflict with itself. Yeah. And uh, that, and, and that can happen, but it doesn't always happen. No. And, but I mean, that's yeah. just an example, right? Like yeah. the, the whole point for what I'm, what Kristeva is saying, and, and this is, I think why it's important to remember that she is not saying we got to just unleash the semiotic and to hell with the, with the symbolic. She's not saying no. that no, she's no. saying these are both part of what it means to be a human. Yes. And unless we are, um, and, and she is positioning her argument within a larger discussion of, I, I think it's kind of a critique of Heidegger, actually, of, of or, or maybe not Heidegger exactly, but it's, it's a critique of seeing theory and fiction as the same thing. Um, okay. Like, because for I her, like the sound of that. what she's trying to do when she talks about poetic language, right? Like, yep. I, I think a bunch of the book is about Mallarmé. Um, she's trying to say, there's stuff that's going on when we talk about po when we use poetic language that isn't the same as theory, right? Like if I use, I can use a poem and talk about it as if it's theory, right? Like, um, yep. you know, Wordsworth gets used that way all the time. Okay. But actually what's going on in poetry has more to do with drives and, and uh, you know, emotions and and things that you can't speak, right? It's things that can't be spoken because the minute you put it something into words, it it changes what it actually is. Mm -hmm. And so what she's trying to say is, is she's like, see that 
unless we are, if we think that we can just function theoretically, then we're forgetting about this, mm -hmm. this deep set, uh, you know, mess within us that that is going to erupt. Given an unexplainable and, yep, and yeah, okay. So I do, I do like that. I guess my worry is maybe this is where my, this is an example of maybe where our challenge to communicate comes from my desire to be known and express and the and and have a fear of a world in which the um uh i guess yeah so the the symbolic i'm afraid of it being devalued if right if what we're talking about is any good thing is labeled as symbolic and the definition of capital r real is the horror right right and because um because what's because for me when i think about the real i think about so and again and i think i've said to you before like the reason why i like heidegger is because he's one of few philosophers who sets a middle ground between i know everything Right. And you can't know anything, you know, yeah. like Hume is like, uh, I'm going to play billiards, right. screw it. Right. <laughs> and then, and Kant is like, no, I have figured out how I can reduce everything relevant to all that I know right now. <laughs> and, yes. um, the, 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 apparently the women in the town where Kant was from Konigsberg or, or wherever it was used mm -hmm. to set their watches by him passing by because he was so anally retentive <laughs> right. that he uh he like would always do his walk on the, sa exactly at the, same, the time. same time yeah. He, uh, yeah and there's lots of great little bits about cod but um so with and and there's a, a term and i'm not sure if it actually applies to what i really think but um for a long time analytic philosophers have said what it means to know something you also have to be able to show how you know it's true. Right. If it's just a coincidence that uh, what you believe happens to be true, you don't really know it. Right. Right. And that model ultimately means you don't know anything. Right. Yeah. And 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 people are you know like I remember. You know, I'm not very far past, if I'm past, being a know-it-all brat who could uh, point out how, oh, people don't really know what they think they know, you know? And being a skeptic, uh, every smartass <laughs> is a skeptic, right? Right. But the reality is, and, and I just used the reality, the real, the skeptics are wrong some connection between us and something around us right which so that's where i and i may have just made the false association in lacan and maybe Kristeva that this world around us that we may or may not be able to know partially uh or that we know partially but never fully that's what I think of as the real. That's like right. not we can't. Uh, it can't be subsumed subsumed under us. We can't uh, fully apprehend it. We can't grasp it, but we can know it 
in just like you know a person like a right a relational and, and, I, knowing. and I I think the the thing about the real to I think remember is that uh there's still it's there's still something about language to it right yep. like we're not talking about a literal tree still yeah but what we're talking about is that if I uh through uh you know language described a tree you know within an inch of its life you know yeah. basically just described it so that everybody who was around me we all understood what it was right we understood exactly what i was talking about we're, yeah. we're maybe there right and we're like yeah and people are like adding to what it is right and we've got this amazing three-dimensional and like uh synchronic and diachronic understanding of what a tree is yeah um and then the tree speaks or the tree does something that none of us had any imagination for understanding yeah. what it could possibly be doing in yeah. that moment. Yeah. That's the real, the real is, is, or, or the tree, uh, suddenly without, um, without anyone knowing the tree explodes because a lightning bolt has struck through it. And yeah. everyone says, Oh my goodness, was that God? Yeah. Like, what was that that just happened? Yeah. That moment where language fails and, uh, and all you're left with is sort of like, uh, I don't know what just happened. And then you suddenly have people saying like, well, I, I don't think anything happened. Like, let's just ignore it. Right. Or I, I, I'm trying to come up with an analogy, but it's basically yeah. like the idea that, that the real, we're not talking about like, like, you know, yeah, uh, language is fine and good, but then eventually, you know, you either have a fruit or not. Right. Um, I think it's, it's even things like, I remember Heidegger, so Heidegger has like a, an essay about uh, the thing, dusting, okay, um, where he talks about boots or shoes or peasants' shoes or something like that. Okay, sounds um, like his topic. And uh, and I'm gonna again, I don't know it well enough to remember, but it, he kind of goes on and on about the the way that they appear, and it's I think a Van Gogh painting, perhaps oh, that he's describing. This... Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and then he gets to this he kind of talks about it he talks about the way that they you know are disclosing themselves and disclosing the life of the peasants right and and uh the way that uh the 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 you know just just you know he kind of gets a little kind of aryan uh in it i think as well like not aryan yeah. exactly but kind of that yeah, same like I, romantic I yeah. nostalgia for peasant life or whatever yeah and someone did a critical reading of that essay where yeah. he said, like, let's talk about peasants for real. And let's yeah. talk about what Heidegger left out of his little romantic nostalgia tour. Mm -hmm. And so, there's something in there, I think, that also has to do with the real, right? Yeah. Like the real being, well, I see a tree and you see a tree. And the there's something in it that neither of us see because we don't have the history of the fact that that tree got planted there by, you mm -hmm. know, call well, but, it colonialists or whatever it might be right like there's things in reality that we can't see yep um and when they erupt and destroy our symbolic order that's what the real is right but i guess i guess my point is is that they could erupt in delightful ways like right. what if it literally sprouted fruit right yes you you were very hungry and you were about to kill a man who had the last peanut and then the tree sprouted fruit um, and, uh, and I like, and so this, 
you know, mm, this I and like I that. like and I like the blend of like I can see like what I again this she's saying that the real erupts, right? So I respect there's a lot of things I like about Kant, but he writes off the noumenal, the things, the stuff that is actually there pretty early in his discussion and then moves on to study to talk about our experience as if what's there doesn't matter. Right. And Kristeva is coming back and saying what's there matters. And, uh, but I can't help Mm. but feel like there is these philosophers have such a fear of a world beyond their understanding. Right. That the acknowledging there's a world they don't understand sounds horrible. Right. Whereas like the peasant, the one thing he's got is he says, well, okay. So there may be, there may be two kinds of peasants. Maybe there's a peasant who says, I know how it is and this is how it is. And I'm sure that's common, but there's probably another peasant who's like, you know, there's a lot I don't know. And I don't know what I don't know, you know? And, um, and so I'm just, so I so, think you're so, right. Like, and Barfield, I think Barfield is a philosopher mm, who doesn't do that. Yeah. And I think you're actually putting your f- finger on, on something about French theory in general. It's, it's, the, it's kind of the reason why so much of it m- tends towards nihilism. Right. Right. Well, or, and, or tends and, towards like dark. It's well, dark, and in, right? <laughs> in, in yes, and and the what's the the school that comes like post Marx, like the uh, Frankfurt School. Oh, Frankfurt School, right? Yeah. So and and with these people, so they hate you know, Disney. This, they hate Walt Disney. Yeah. So this is this feels to me. I I remember reading Adorno, a book by Horkheimer and Adorno. Yeah. And believing. This was the best writer I had ever re- ever read. Every sentence had two meanings and both were true. Right. And, <laughs> and it blew my mind. But okay, so this is this is like a moment of like simplifying. But when when you take um when you take so this is where the Marx as a, like a father of skepticism right. who just he he does what is literally described as a fallacy called poisoning the well where right. he says everyone who disagrees with me is is just trying to uh to they're doing it for their own selfish reasons to maintain the structures of power right and the um so the school so then you know the progression and this is just one line this is not all of it but the line that says um, it's there's all this, there's the people in power, you know, the capitalists who are just trying to maintain power and everything they say to you that doesn't make the world like your imaginary, your dream of how it's supposed to be yeah. means that they're lying to you. And I mean, I think that that like that's going to lead you to dark places fast and it eliminates the possibility of communication. Um, But whereas the real as something that has the potential to show you you are wrong, not even the horrific real, I think, has real value. 
Yeah. Like it, it's definitely not always sprouting fruit. And, and even when it's challenging, like there are, there are people in my life who uh, notice and occasionally appreciate when they realize they're wrong. Yeah. And that it's amazing to watch. Yeah. Like they're the, they're like, they realize they're wrong and their face almost lights up to be like, whoa. Right. That means I yeah. learned something. Yeah. Anyway, so, um, but at the same time, so Chris Deva. Now, now Chris, I should say, yeah. when I've been talking about Lacan's typology, yeah. a symbolic, imaginary, and real, that's yeah. Lacan's. Yeah. Uh, Zizek picks it up. Um, yeah. I don't know how much Chris Deva oh, uses yeah. that right. same uh, analogy, right? The semiotic yeah. for her is is a good thing. It's not... It's yes. not the real either, right? Like right. Okay. Um, the semiotic is that is those drives, those inchoate drives that are in the child, right? Like and and they continue within us even into the symbolic world, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So I mean, I've been reading this, I guess I've been talking about it from a Lacanian perspective, but I don't know Kristeva well enough to know whether she I, I don't think that she would be as afraid of the real as yes. Lacan okay. is. Right, yeah. like, or or as negative about it. Like okay. the whole point yeah. of poetic language is to say you're uncovering things that are only accessible in what we've been calling the real, whether yeah. or not that's accurate or not. But yeah, within the semiotic, right? Yeah, like, and to be a subject on in process is to be um, a subject who is on trial because often the symbolic world, right, the the world of every day, the everyday is trying to clamp down those feelings right those to, to see uh you know to to be blake right i think about william blake all the time and about the the way that you know people thought that he was this crazy person right mm -hmm. because he he had this line where he said uh you look at the sun and you see a guinea right like a little coin you see a coin yeah. Um, I look at the sun and I see a choir full of angels, right? <laughs> and I mean, yeah. sometimes it's like, you know, when he was a kid, he did see, look out and look out at his tree and he thought that the tree was full of angels. And yeah. one time he thought that God looked through his window. And anyways, <laughs> right. he, he, he was crazy from a symbolic perspective, from the social perspective, right? But yeah. there was something within him, the way that he saw the world that was not real like horrifying it was real in this like the beautiful possibility of of something that was deeper than just what everybody said it was right yeah. everybody said yeah. oh it's just you know the sun's just a circle in the sky man totally um yeah and and so people like that like and barfield is the same you know people who who seem to kind of see the world as as something more than just either more than just what they you know what More everybody what says it thought. is yeah or see the world as horror right? right to see the horror of it and and i mean i think it's that's a really good point so so one of the things that just like in the notion of people being on trial right and it's interesting because that sound like i'm not sure like it's almost like that could sound scary but i'm not my concern is not with being on trial i mean in the sense that, like, if you're not on trial, is that me? Does that mean you are being told um, 
the person that you are now uh, has no need to grow, right? Being on trial, I think I can, I'm interested in a reading of being on trial that says, no, Jonathan, uh, you should grow, right? This, this person who currently has four ideas in his head and two of them are wrong, you know, or whatever. And so, I mean, I guess, and then, uh, and so for me, uh, what I like about conversations with you is that I can keep, um, I can be tested. And then the question is what, what is said at the end of the trial? Um, and, uh, because maybe the trial never ends. Right. (laughs) Oh, well, but I mean, so I mean, for me, the fear is not the trial. The fear is the judgment. Right. right? Um, And so um, so I am I think I'm never going to live up to the real. Right. The real is always going to test me physically, uh, socially, morally. I'm I'm going to fail. Right. Um, and and that's why the eruption of the real uh, is is this thing that says, no, be in process. Right. You're not done. Right. Um, well, and-, and I think it's a I think it's a it's a sign of hope. It's a sign of hope from the perspective of. The real I mean, honestly, COVID is is could could be seen as as a real where yeah. it, it reveals the things that we've taken for granted. Mm hmm. And it reveals the things that we thought like, oh, we have to do it this way, even though it's horrible and it sucks. Mm-hmm. And then the real, like the, or whatever, COVID comes on the scene. And I think people say, I actually, man, I I have been missing my children growing up, right? Mm-hmm. Or I've been, uh, you know, I've been on, in a car for two hours a day, every day. Yeah. Like, and now I, or, you know, maybe, maybe someone's not, you know, I've been going to the bar, I've been watching movies and then all of a sudden I've picked up baking, you know, who knows what exactly. Right. Like, so I think you're right. It can be a, it can be an interruption in a social level of saying, were we doing things the right way? Mm -hmm. You know, what what was, what were we missing out on Mm -hmm. that? We somehow had just sort of gone into the everyday sort of life. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I think, uh, subjects and process. <laughs> yeah. It's, I like, I mean, I feel like we, we did, uh, we did, there was some processing. There was uh, and, some, uh, no progress, but you know, maybe no, there was, well, for me, maybe I, there felt, was I felt, progress. I feel I like, um, I got some progress out of it. I'm into, I'm into Kristeva now. Uh, I mean, I, I need to know more. I need to yeah, know more. I do too. Um, but, um, Yep, I like. Um, yep, I like. I like. I you know for real for sure she had insight there. You know, there's, um, and uh, so in the, our next episode, yeah, ideally, our plan is for you to hear two separate conversations stitched together. Yes, and uh, that's gonna be. Uh, on technology now this will if this doesn't happen it's not going to be the first time we've lied to you but yes <laughs> to, to state it for ourselves and maybe we'll just cut out this promise in the in in the podcast but the idea is we're going to try expressing our ignorance asking some questions and then 
doing some digging and coming back and yeah. having a, a second half. So um, anyway, we're uh, we're excited about it, and I think it'll be interesting. And we are planning on doing this at least once, uh, talking about technology, yeah, and some of our questions about how tech affects people, society, yeah, uh, ourselves, ourselves, exactly. Yeah. And um, and then we'll uh, we'll kind of give some explanation about why we think it's an interesting topic, some of the things we want to know more about. Yeah. And then we're going to take a break and come back after trying to hopefully look into some of those things and come I back think it should be, yeah, I think it should be good. Um, so if you have any thoughts on uh, anything that you've heard or on technology ahead yeah. of us recording that, uh, feel free to email us at subjectsinprocesspodcast at gmail.com. Awesome. And we will for sure read it at some point. Oh, yeah. I check it every once in a while. I mean, if case. you, yeah, if I had the, the, I don't have the password for it. Oh, so I've never checked it. Oh, but, it's the same as the Google Drive. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, thanks so much. Yeah, we had thanks, fun. John. Yeah. And uh, yeah, great talking to you, Jeff. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.